It's the crescendo of the Psalms. It's a vision of God's promised king. And as believers of Jesus, we see that Jesus has fulfilled this. But this was, uh, was dedicated to Solomon or of Solomon, which we'll get to in a minute. But it's this vision of what God's promised king, David's son, would do. He would be a blessing because God would establish David's son on the throne forever and ever. And all the nations would come down and bow before him because he delivers the needy. He helps the poor. All the nations flourish because of his rule. And so this is a crescendo in the Psalms. And uh, it fulfills what God told um, David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, I don't know if you have time. It's on page 259 in your pew Bible. But this is the promise that God gives to David through the prophet Nathan. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits inequity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So this is what's happening. David, Solomon, David is an older man. And Solomon is being enthroned. And so some people wonder if this is David's psalm for a coronation. And so you have the superscription of Solomon. Now, the Hebrew word of has the same ambiguity that English has. Of can, it, can be a, it can have a variety of forms of meanings. So of Solomon can mean by Solomon, a psalm of David, psalm of Solomon. Or it can mean about Solomon. Or it can even mean in the according to the style of Solomon or in the according to the style of David. So when we see Psalms that says of David, it means it might be by David, about David, or in the style of David. This Hebrew has this kind of flexibility. And so you see these superscriptions written into uh, the Psalms uh, that many don't think are original but are applied or able to apply to. And so you have this instance where it's of Solomon, and yet at the very end it says, thus ends the prayers of David. So many people think that it's David writing a coronation psalm about his son being established on the throne and praising God for the promises that have been brought forth from his own body, that the king would be established forever. And so... It's not surprising to have a doxology. You have this doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And so this is right to praise God's promises being established through Solomon. It's in fact also the doxology, not just for this psalm, it's the doxology that finishes book two. So book two, as we'll see, is actually a theme about the promised king to come. And so this doxology is finishing book two to praise that God has brought forth his promised king. And so it's this, this crescendo in the Psalms. But this does not, this thus ends the Psalms of David. So it's, it's odd to have this after the doxology rather than before the doxology, especially if it's ending the book rather than the psalm, if you see what I mean. So is this is perhaps David's last psalm, his last, his last gasp. He's an older man, and he's written this psalm, and then it ends. But it's interesting to put that into the book to say, well, by the way, this was his last one that he ever wrote. Maybe. It's possible. But it could also, some scholars, and we don't have to press this, but a lot of scholars think that this could possibly be the, the original ending of the Psalms. 
This could have been an original ending of the Psalms, that the Psalms moved to this crescendo, and it kind of was this completion. But whatever we think about that, you see that there's editorial process evident throughout the books of the Psalms. There's a great intentionality. So you have Psalms of Moses incorporated, the sons of Korah, the sons of Asaph. You also have the Babylonian exile, by the waters or by the rivers of Babylon we wept. And so most people believe that the ending, the, the final composition, the final editing of all the Psalms ended in exile, that these were incorporated during and the final composition while they were in Assyria, while they were in Babylon, and they're reflecting on God's promised king in Psalm 72. It's, it's um, uh, this moment that you have like at a wedding, and you, you see two young lovers up front, and you think, they're starry-eyed, and if you're long in the tooth in marriage, you think, are they really ready? Are they going to make it? Because there's going to be a lot of trials and tribulations for their marriage on the way forward. And, or even when you see a young Christian, they profess their faith in Jesus, and they're so excited, and you're so excited for them, and you celebrate. And it's right to celebrate, just as you did at the wedding, but you also might ask in yourself, are they really ready? for the whole journey of the life of faith in Jesus. And I think that that's what's happening here in Psalm 72. It's, it's right to praise God for what he has established. He's established his promise of the king, and yet we know that Solomon didn't do very well. And so what follows Psalm 72 is Psalm 73. Does anyone know what Psalm 73 is about? Psalm 73 is, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? It's a question. God, you've established your king, but it's not happening. And so we have these great joys of when this young, uh, young Christian comes, and then they, have, they go from mountaintop to mountaintop, and then a crisis happens. And it makes them question. It makes them reassess. God, who are you? And, and we've seen people um, go through these uh, hard moments and they have to, you know, we see in the churches, especially at Labrie, a lot of people going into deconversion. They're, they're losing their faith. They're, lo they're leaving the church. But some people will come to Labrie and they want to reassess. And when they reassess in the midst of a crisis, they have God's promises. They've had that joy. But now in the midst of crisis, they need to reassess. And they need to set it in a larger framework. And I believe that the, the, the Psalter, the, the books of the Psalms, are actually asking us to step back and reassess in the larger framework of what God is accomplishing. What God has promised. And so I want us to look at this rearranged framework throughout the whole Psalter, the whole books of the Psalms. And so we're going to look at the five books there's five books. And so sometimes when we just read Psalms, we think they're a loose collection of Israel's hymn book. But actually, it's a, an organized collection telling you a story. The Psalms tell you and take you on a journey, the full journey of God's people. And it's set in exile and wondering about what God's promises mean for his people throughout time. And what do they mean for us now? And so the first book is book one. That's where we should start. And what you have in book one, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, it's interesting that the focus is on Torah, on the law. It's not on the temple, it's on the law, because most likely in the exile, they've lost their temple. What does it mean to be faithful when they don't have the ability to do all the sacrifices or the temple? What they did is that they started emphasizing their studies of the Torah. 
They, they devoted themselves day and night to studying what is God's law about. Not just God's law, but Torah is really the whole counsel of God, the whole revelation of God. And so they're worshiping Yahweh from far away. And Psalm 1 really hits the tone and begins the theme of what book 1 is about. It's about covenantal faithfulness. It's about this constant um, asking about how might I be pure before God? How might, can I enter into his presence? And right in the middle of book 1 is Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, it begins, creation pours forth speech. The, the world declares the glory of God. But that is a wisdom psalm, but it, it emphasizes Torah in the middle of it. The law of the Lord comes like the sunshine. And it gives life, but it also exposes. And so right in the center of Psalm 1, Psalm 19 was placed. And in fact, what you'll see in book 5, or I'll tell you now, <laughs> you don't have to wait. Book 5, in the middle, or at the uh, thematic center of book 5, is Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119, you probably know what that is. It's the boring one. <laughs> it's the one that's very long. It's an acrostic psalm, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, um, in the Hebrew letters. But it's a reflection on Torah. And so, it's, and so you're like, why do they need so many refrains on Torah? But you can think of it as almost like two pillars of a house where Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are psalms reflecting Torah on this house of the Psalter. And so the pillars of the house is based on God's revelation, God's word. And so Psalm 1, I mean, book 1 is reflecting on this Torah. And in fact, the whole composition of the Psalms is so indebted to the Torah is that there's five books of Psalms, just like there's five books of Torah. So the Psalms is very much reflective on Torah because it is, it is looking at God's covenant and the promise of his blessing to those who are faithful and that he will be faithful to his covenant. <laughs> Cancel culture. I'm kidding. <clears throat> so uh, if the king is faithful to Torah, he will be established. That's what book one is really thinking about. What is it? not just for the Israelite, not just for God's chosen one, but the king particularly should evidence this faithfulness to Torah. And if he's faithful to Torah, he will be established on his throne, which leads us to book two. Now, Psalm 2, some, uh, a lot of people think Psalm 1 brings the theme of Psalm uh, Book 1. Psalm 2 is really a reflection of the theme in Book 2. And so you have in Psalm 2, uh, you have this famous uh, scene. It's called a royal psalm. It's psalms that are dedicated to the king. So wisdom psalms are dedicated to thinking about creation and Torah. Royal psalms is really th um, thinking about the king. You also have Thanksgiving Psalms, Lament Psalms, Petition. And so there's different variety of forms of Psalms. And so this is a royal Psalm. And in Psalm 2, uh, we can start with uh, verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Which brings up these echoes of Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 7. This promises to David that God is establishing his covenant through David and David's son, who will be a king on a throne. So Torah is pointing to this promise and this covenant of this promise that God is going to establish through David's own body. And so Psalm uh, Book 2 is really um, has a high amount of royal psalms in it. Well, its climax is Psalm 72, which is where we started. And it's the highest praise of the, of the king, of this king who would be established. Um, <clears throat> but this is not the end of David's psalms. This isn't the end of the story. And so you have a, 
a desire for covenant faithfulness. It's the center. It's the pillars. It's the whole goal of the, of the Psalms. The king is supposed to represent this. And at that high moment, that promise of Solomon, he does, but he doesn't. Solomon was sinful, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And so they wanted to reassess and say, why? So book three begins with Psalm 73, which is a lament psalm. It's, this is the reason why they are lamenting here. It's not just one person lamenting, but it's all of Israel. It's all of God's people asking, how can this be? Like you promised that if we're faithful to the covenant, that there will be blessing. And if we're unfaithful, there will be curses. But you know that we have these, the need for atonement through the sacrifices. And so we're, we're trying to apply ourselves as God's people. But now there's not even a king. You promised in 2 Samuel, you promised to David that his king, like you would spurn, uh, you would discipline him, but you would never spurn your king forever. You remove Saul, but you promised not to do that for Solomon. Or at least David's son. So why is this happening? We don't even have a king. We don't have a temple. We don't have a land. God, how could you be true to your promises? And so book three is filled with lament. And in fact, book one, two, and three, the majority of lament are in those three books. Now, lament... I sometimes encourage the students at Labrie to feel angry, to be angry. And in my foolishness, in my early, my early Labrie life, I encourage people to be angry at God. Now I encourage them to be angry before God. Uh, but the lament psalms would, are quite hard. God, are you asleep? Are you sleeping? Do you not see how long? And you have the darkest psalms. Near the end of book 3 in Psalm 88. You know we all know the ending of Psalm 88, do we not? Can anyone tell me? Okay. Chris needs to start teaching you the Psalms. I'm kidding. Darkness is my only friend. I've lost my neighbor, my friend. Darkness is my only friend. It's this heartbreaking Psalm and it brings us comfort when we understand that darkness, that heaviness. Simon and Garfunkel, yeah. But you know, the darkest psalm, I don't think it's Psalm 88. I think it's Psalm 89, which ends book three. It's the heaviest. It's the darkest. Now, I think that there's a reason why um, we don't think it's the darkest, because it ends with this praise. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. But let's look at verses 49. Psalm 89, verse 49. O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one, of your promised Messiah, your promised King. And so Psalm 89 is, in fact, a direct reflection of Psalm 72, but in the opposite light. Praise God. He's established his king forever. But God, why is the crown in the dust, as it says earlier in the psalm? Your anointed one is being kicked and spit upon and mocked in a foreign country. God, where are your promises? And so uh, book three is honest about this lament, about this uh, lament over God's uh, king being spat upon. Well, what happens after Psalm 89? Does anyone know about Psalm 90? (laughs) It begins with Moses. Moses is writing a psalm. And what does he say? How does he start Psalm 90? Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, if we have gone from joy to an acute crisis, often when we survive that acute crisis, that acute lament, we enter into despondency. We enter into wilderness. Book four is about wilderness. Moses begins, but he's also reflecting 
He's like, wait a minute. We've been here before. In fact, God's promises was before there was any king, before there was any temple. In fact, Lord, you yourself are our dwelling place. You are from everlasting to everlasting. So it is you, only you, that we can find our place, ultimately. And so uh, book four is full of historical psalms. Psalms that you, you hear retellings of the Exodus. And often the worst por- portions. And it's, and it's reflections on how they had been disobedient. God was leading them by day and by night. And they were disobedient to this covenant. And yet God led them. Remember the wonders he has performed. Psalm 105. Like our ancestors, ancestors we sinned in the wilderness. Psalm 106. And it really reflects this existential homelessness that's happening for the believer. Now, at Labrie, homelessness is, is an economic and financial tragedy where people don't have homes. But at Labrie, we also find people who are in this existential homelessness. They don't know, they don't want to go home. They don't know where they're going, and they're not quite sure who they are or what they're about. And it creates this huge existential crisis. Um, and it's these these Psalms, Book 4, is really talking about how God is going to lead you through the wilderness and discipline you and um, reward you with blessings as if you just keep following Him. You may not be sure about everything, but you're just going to keep plodding along and trusting Him. It turns us to Book 5. Where does Book 5 begin? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. It's this acknowledgement that God disciplines. He disciplines us, but He's going to restore us ultimately. We've suffered these crises. We've had this wilderness, but He's going to restore us. And He's going to bring us back home. He's going to establish And so it's reflections on this disobedience, discipline, and restoration. In fact, let me read verses 4 through 9 as just an example. So Psalm 107 is a great, just gives little examples. Some wandered in the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they would settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, for his wonderful deeds for men, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. God's promises stand, and he will be true to his word. He will restore us. We're in the wilderness, but he's bringing us there. He's going to be true to his promise. It's an encouragement. And so really, I I sometimes think of book five as called the return of the king. And so instead of three books, like the Fellowship of the Ring, it's the five books. But it ends with the same, the return of the king. And so it's the return of God's people and the return of his king. And it's, it's not idealistic, it's not utopian, but it's like we've wandered, but he will restore us. He will bandage us up and bring us home. And so what you have through Psalm 113 through 118, they're called the Hallel Psalms, the Praise God Psalms. You know these. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Um, And it keeps going on. And these Hallel Psalms, these praise songs, that's Hallel, like hallelujah. These Hallel Psalms were sung every Passover. 113 through 118 were sung at every Passover. And some people think that Jesus at the Last Supper would have sung these Psalms with his disciples. And then it turns to Psalm 119 which is the acrostic psalm, the one on Torah, that that second pillar. And then after Psalm 119, you have Psalm 120 through 134, which are the songs of ascent. Now, sometimes we think of ascent as ascending to heaven. But really, uh, I like the New Living Translations version. It says, pilgrims on their way back home to Jerusalem. They're ascending up Jerusalem, which was on a higher hill, and they were ascending up 
to Jerusalem. And that's the thought. And some people even think, because there's 15 of these, and they, they, they think that there's 15 steps on the temple. And that on step one, they would have recited Psalm 120. And on the next step, 121. And on the next step, 122. Until they get to the top. And then they're praising God. Now, it doesn't mean that all is well. Because Psalm 137 reminds us, by the rivers of Babylon we wept. So it's not naive. It's not optimistic. It remembers where they're at. But they're holding on to this promise of return. And then Psalm 136, his faithful love endures forever. You know, uh, and then it recites uh, the story of how God led them. His love endures forever. Recites something about their history. His love endures forever. And then the final psalms, the final psalms are in complete praise. Now, uh, what got me started on this is uh, there's a guy named G.H. Wilson who talked about the editing of the Psalter. It's a very academic book, so don't. You don't need to read it. It's very scholastic. But he came up with this idea as when he looked at the, at the Psalms is that he saw something what he called the seams. At the seams, there seemed to be something there. And he was looking at the doxologies. And so each book ends with a doxology. Psalm 41, verse 13. Let me read these. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Psalm 72. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to the glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And even at the end of lament, at book three, Praise be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And then book four, um, book four, Psalm 106. If anyone gets there before me, just tell me. Okay. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And so it's interesting that you have praise for his covenant, praise for his king, Praise for lament. Praise for the wilderness. The journey. Now, you have to see that these, these, the doxologies are actually quite different. One is like, praise God from generation to generation. And then with the king, it's the high doxology. Wow, praise you. You've done great works. And then, saw, and then at the end of lament, it's like, okay, praise you. It's hard right now, but praise you. It's just one-liner. And then book four, praise you from generation to generation. Now, what's interesting is that book five does not end with the doxology. It ends with five doxologies, five psalms of doxology. Sun and moon praise him. Earth praise him. Trees praise him. Animals praise him. Israel praise him. It's just praise, praise, praise. Walter Brueggemann called it abandoned praise. Because in the end, all we want to do is praise him. And in fact, the five psalms that end the Psalter are reflections of the five books. So there's five psalms for five books, which reflect the five books of Torah. So you see a lot of very intentional editing happening in the psalms. It's a portrait of renewed creation and God's redeemed people. And so I want to... To finish with three reflections on this, I want to bring it all together. Okay. <clears throat> so, I want to say that this reflects God's tapestry, God's fulfillment, and God's sovereignty. And I think that this is beautiful and amazing. So, in our prayer life, we often feel that our prayers are very disparate. We... We may pray in our closet. We may pray in our rooms. We may pray through the drive-thru. But we're praying somewhere. And there's times when like, Lord, are you listening? Is it going anywhere? Is this just positive psychology? God, are you listening? 
And so you have all these people praying throughout all time in different places, in different circumstances. The poor, the wealthy, the successful, the hurting. They're all praying to God at some point in some way, and we're probably at those points in all of them. And what has happened is Edith Schaefer talked about the tapestry. And so Edith Schaefer started Labrie. On one side of the tapestry, you see the loose threads. And on the other side, you see the completed work of the beautiful tapestry. And she says, on this side of heaven, we're the loose threads. But in the end, God, we will see what God has done in this tapestry. And because our lives can feel like loose threads. Where are they going? How do they hang? And they just feel like they're barely hanging on. And we don't know how they're being incorporated into a bigger picture. And the Psalms, these editors have brought Psalms from Moses all the way to Babylon, David, Solomon, Asaph, Korah, and many others. Brought them all together into this beautiful tapestry. This beautiful portrait of God's people on a journey. They've taken all these prayers and have told the story of God's faithfulness to his people. And when we, so when we see the Psalms, we see that there's a story that God is doing with us, even though we feel that our prayers might be very isolated. And so what we see is that these prayers have been woven together for us to see that God is doing something, that he has a witness to us in the midst of all this. But the most amazing is one of the most amazing things is the second point is God's fulfillment through the Psalms. So the Psalms were a part of the writings of the Jewish scriptures. And it's not just like breaking a plate and putting them back together into a mosaic, which would be wonderful in itself. You take something broken, then you organize it into this beautiful testimony of what God has done and is doing um, in, in his inspired way. <clears throat> but when we look at the Psalms, when we put all these pieces together, when we organize prayer from Bob and Sue and Jane and Tim, those are just the four names I got. But when you organize all these names together, you don't just see God's people, you see the face of Jesus. Because the Psalms are fulfilled in him. And I want us to see this. That whenever Jesus, uh, when Jesus was constantly asked to identify himself, who are you? What are you about? Where are you from? Where did he point? Most often he pointed to the prayers of God's people. He pointed to the Psalms. He pointed to the Psalms to say, this is who I am. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm going to have to wing it. So I have a PowerPoint that I had yesterday. I'm going to have to remember the passages. <laughs> but here's one example. So when Jesus is coming in on the donkey into Jerusalem... They're singing songs. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees are upset. Do you hear what they're saying? Do you know what's happening? So remember during Passover, the Hillel Psalms were being sung every year. And it got at this moment when Jesus gets on the donkey. He's coming into Jerusalem and they say, Blessed is the one who's coming. Jesus is the one that's promised. He's the one that's going to be established forever and ever. Hallelujah. The Messiah has come. And the Pharisees like, hey, do you know what they're saying to you? Do you know what's going on? And what does Jesus say? He says, don't you know that the Lord ordained praise from the infants? This is Psalm 8. And so in this moment... He's saying, they recognize who I am. I am the fulfillment of the promise of the Psalms. This is being fulfilled in me. And he continues to point to the Psalms as his identification. He points to Psalm 110 when he says, uh, you know, David had a son. And he said, uh, my Lord said to the Lord, you know, and then I can't remember the whole phrase, sorry. But, it's, but he said, if... If this is David, who is this talking about? David's son. Well, then how can David's son be the Lord of David? And they don't say anything. But what Jesus is doing is identifying himself as the one who is David's son, but greater than David. 
He's the fulfillment. He's making no doubt about it that he's the Messiah, that he's the promised one. And even he takes it on to his... Um, he Well, hold on. So the disciples of Emmaus, he leads them and they can't understand, did Jesus die and now we hear something about resurrection? We're not sure what to think. And Jesus met them and he's walking on the way and it says, and Jesus pointed out what all would be fulfilled through the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So he's saying the Psalms pointed to him. Which is amazing, is saying that God's people are longing for God to act. In their prayer, they pray to him and ask God, can you act? And they record those prayers, they keep those prayers, they organize those prayers. And now Jesus is saying, your longings, my people's longings, have actually pointed to me. And are being fulfilled in me. That's amazing that God has been able to orchestrate this. And that even... Jesus himself will take on the Psalms as his own interior feelings. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so not only does he see that they point to him, but that also he takes them on as his own expression to his own father. So he's taking the prayers of God's people to point to himself and has taken them on as his own. So whatever you might think of this editorial process that God has been able to do this, and show that it's been fulfilled in him. Uh, there's a guy, I think, working for the Gospel Coalition. His name's Michael Morales. And uh, he wrote an uh, article called Jesus in the Psalms. So if you look that up on Google, he'll point a lot of this out as well. Michael Morales, M-O-R-A-L-E-S. <clears throat> but the last thing I want to talk about, so I've talked about how it's been organized into a tapestry to show that God's people are on a journey, but also that it's been fulfilled by Jesus, that he's taken our longings and says it actually has pointed to me. The last thing is God's sovereign power over the editorial process. Is <clears throat> that God not only had his sovereignty over this, he, he was able to take these prayers, the people, these editors through God's inspiration inspired the person speaking and inspired the person editing the process. So that God was over all of this. There was human action, there was human freedom, and yet God was able to orchestrate it all together to point to his own purposes. That he's accomplishing his purposes and bringing about his son in his people, in spite of us not being able to see it all, but he does. And so this whole point is that there's no little people or no little places, that God is orchestrating each of our lives into his good purposes, into his whole. And so this is why at the each end of each book we can give thanks, we can have a doxology. And I think Paul was a close reader of the Psalms. And so doesn't mean that we need to have a plastic smile or giving thanks for tragedy, but giving thanks in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of loss. And so Paul in, sorry, I don't have these written down. In Philippians, this is where I'm ending, so that's good. Does anyone remember the verse in Philippians where we pray and petition with thanksgiving? Thank you. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. The peace of God, which trans all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the only one I'll point because of the time. But you see that he knows, Paul knows you're anxious. And Paul knows that God knows you're anxious and that you have needs. And yet he's saying, through your prayers and petition, but with thanksgiving. And so at Labrie, we have Monday morning prayers. And so at our branch, what we do is that we have time for thanksgiving and we have time for petition and we always start with thanksgiving 
Let's start with Thanksgiving, and we name all our Thanksgiving because we want to remind ourselves that God has responded to our prayers, and that also it's a foundation from which we might petition him. And so Thanksgiving is the framework that Paul is drawing, and that we can cry out and petition to him because God has it in his sovereign care, that he's bringing us into a beautiful tapestry and fulfilling it in Jesus. Okay, so that's where I want to end. Uh, I don't know if there's time for discussion, follow-up. Is there time? We have 10 minutes. Thank you. I like that. So anyone have a, a comment? Anyone scandalized? Overjoyed? Both? Yes. So your question is about their uncomfortability praying corporately yeah. or praying with Thanksgiving? Um, I think I'm just thinking about if I were to invite or as we invite people in to pray together to maybe do something like that, to set that we just say, hey, guys, we're going to pray things and then start asking for things or, hey, let's for a time, let's take this to pray and nothing but Thanksgiving. And then after that, let's put our request forward. I guess I'm more so asking Okay, so, so, so you're asking the question about, like I mentioned at Labrie, we have this practice of Thanksgiving and petition, and I say that we start with Thanksgiving to kind of begin it with hope and also create a foundation for our petition, and, and what might that look like, especially if people are a bit uncomfortable or unfamiliar. Now, it's not a form, it's, not, I'm not, it's just a form. It's just, it, we can do it in many kinds of ways. It doesn't mean that we can't petition first. It's just like, how do we frame our prayers? Because sometimes we're just in those like Nehemiah moments where we just have to pray quickly. Dear Lord, help. Or why? Or something. Um, and so it's, it's not necessarily a form. It's, it's just the way that we've done it. And so how we do it, because there are people who come to Labrie who aren't Christian or who are skeptical and injured and hurt by the church. And so what we do is actually we just have a conversation. And I say, let's just start th- um, with things that we're thankful for. And we just start talking. And people are, and someone's writing it down. And then I'm like, okay, let's turn to the petition. Uh, because when we started in the beginning, we was like, okay, does anyone have any prayers? You know, things that they want to pray about. It's always petition. But we start with Thanksgiving, and they start giving thanks for it. And as the term goes on, they start becoming more and more thankful for the flowers, the sun, for the day of rest, or whatever. And, and then we go into petition. And then I was like, okay, what what's struggles or what's, what's going on? And we all talk. And then we're like, okay, let's go and pray. And so it's not that we then have to pray for Thanksgiving first and then petition, but that we've just framed it in such a way that Thanksgiving is predominant. And yet there's also real aches and woes and tragedies in the midst of all that. And so it's just, it's just the one way that we have for, framed it. But it can be framed in many ways. So. I think the hardest thing often is just getting started. Just start with something. And so framing and having ideas, oh, it can look like that and say, yeah, I think I can, I think I can try that. Yeah, yeah, just to get started. And uh, I've tried to encourage my kids, like, when um, they don't know what to pray for, I'm just like, well, just give thanks to God for whatever you can imagine today. Thanks for that Lego. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for me not having to do homework. Whatever. Yes? Um, unrelated, and you okay. didn't address this, the imprecatory psalms. Yes. Can you spend a couple minutes just talking about that? Yeah, so there's a, uh, so the question is about imprecatory psalms. Can I say a word about them? Uh, so let me say two things. Uh, one, so I forgot to address this, but when Wilson is talking about the seams, he sees that there's a pattern, but it's not as if we know every reason for every psalm is where it is. But you can find quite a lot. In fact, you could also go on the Bible Project and, and look at the psalms, and they'll show you a similar structure to this. But um, but we don't we can't necessarily find comment or we just haven't figured out where the placement of all those are. So in terms of telling you about the imprecatory psalms of where they are located, I don't know if I can do that. 
But I know Psalm 137 is one of those. And it's called an imprecatory psalm because um, it's this one where we want God's justice. It's like, may their babies be dashed against the rocks. And it's like, well, how are we to think about these kind of psalms? Um, yeah, first, it's, it's, it's a desire for God to bring about his justice. And so the person who's facing... And so what's happening is that it's, it's a really an eye for an eye. It's this... Um, the law would say, you know, if, if someone's cow was borrowed and died, then you have to replace it. It's this whole kind of economy of, like, how can we be just in our society? And taking that as, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which was talking about animals, you know, uh, and being applied more broadly about what, it, what does it mean to be just in society? Well, what happens is that the Babylonians took the Israelites... And they would hurt them and they would take their babies and dash the Israelite babies against the rocks. And, and so what happens is that they're praying that God will do eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, bring justice, that they will fall into their own pit, is really what that's being asked of. And it's vicious. And I do believe that there's a place even in the Christian life to say, God, I want your justice and yet I know that we've all fallen short. But we don't want to short circuit the ability to be upset and to be angry and to name the injustices that have been happening against us. And, uh, but in the, these imprecatory psalms are really naming that injustice and that anger we have toward injustice before the Lord and asking him to act rather than not talking about it and faking it or going and doing something on our own but actually trying to trust in his, his action in it and our calling for it. So that's what I would say about the impregnatory psalms in kind of short notice. Do you want to follow that up at all? Oh, okay. Yes? Okay, early on, you spoke about the psalms as God's songbook. And there's some churches that say exclusively the psalms is said. Yes. It's the psalms in some churches they never say. Yes. The Psalms, and I just comment on you know us as a church, you know not just this church, but singing the Psalms, uh, a grown values. Yeah, so uh, what's the value of singing the Psalms, especially if this is Israel's hymn book? And, and I refer to it as Israel's hymn book because that's not necessarily what they would have referred to it as. It was seen as a part of the writings, a part of this prophetic nature. Um, and so we think of, you know, hymnals here, often broken up as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This is how kind of we organize our modern hymnals. But uh, it's not quite like that. But these are psalms that are helpful to sing in some church traditions, like in Scotland. The, the Presbyterian tradition will sing only psalms with no music because that's, they think that that's the only biblically legitimate way. Uh, I think that we can disagree with that because um, God calls for the creativity of bringing instruments and these kind of things. Um, but I do think that the, the, the psalms, all these psalms, actually present a greater depth and breadth than what often happens in our churches. And so the majority, uh, the greatest psalm, uh, the majority of psalms are lament psalms. But the majority of church songs are not lament psalms. That's because we have Jesus. We know that Jesus. But we should also know that he was a man of sorrow that he probably also lament, he also lamented on the cross. And so we don't want to just be triumphalistic. There is, we're still on the journey waiting for Jesus to return. We have that guarantee that he's overcome death, overcome sin, and overcome evil. But we're waiting for that to happen. But we can still look to the Psalms and say we need a greater breadth and depth to the types of songs that we perhaps sing in the church. Um, I have a great love for hymnals because I think that they are usually very deep and they're educating people about doctrine and the gospel, especially, you know, they were written at a time when people weren't necessarily literate and they were learning the gospel through these. But often in our churches now, we just sing songs that are very reduced. We might re return to like choruses for several stand, you know, several times. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm all for new songs, but let's 
And I don't even mind the chorus songs, but let's just remember. Because there is a time to praise God, praise moon, praise sun, you know, uh, praise him. We have time for that, but we should also set it in context of others. And, and I think it would be good and right to even sing songs of hardships. Um, someone mentioned the other day that they don't like all as well with my soul. But to remember the context of when that was written, that the man who wrote that hymnal had lost his daughter, I believe, or family. Well, okay, so you all know it. <laughs> you don't know the Bible, but you know that. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but uh, I think actually when I hear that is I think it's almost like that the end of Psalm 89 where it says, you, the anointed one is in the dust, but praise be you. All is well with my soul. I'm going to trust you in the midst of tragedy. And so I think that we do need to have those types of songs that remind us of that. Um, so, yeah, so all I would say is that the Psalms should, should help us to realize greater breadth and greater depth in even our church music. Anyone else? Yes. So book one is really, uh, so, what, so we'll repeat what the, each book is about. Book one is really covenant and covenant faithfulness and uh, faithfulness to Torah. Book two is royal psalms or the, about the king, about the promised king being established. Book three is lament. Book four is wilderness. Book five is the return. Anyone else? Well, uh, if there's no one else, I'll, I'll pray for us, and then we can break. Okay, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, we stand in a building that, uh, where we can gather together and to sing songs to you, praise you. And Father, I thank you that we can hear from your word, and that you have even incorporated up the prayers of your people into a word that edifies us and that you have brought to completion in your son Jesus. I thank you that you are so powerful and so good at the same time that you have brought about this wonderful word for us. Father, I pray that, um, that each of us in our own place might know that you have a hold on our life and that none of us are loose threads that are without a place in your story, without a place in your purposes. And so I just want to thank you that you do give us great care, and I pray that, um, that you'll be especially with those who feel really down, and that they might know that uh, you have them securely in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.